In today's athlete story, you are in for a free world-class coaching session. Not only does our guest, American Joe Jacoby, have an Olympic gold medal in whitewater canoeing, which I think is so cool. He's also such a reflective, generous source of wisdom of all the lessons he's taken with him from the river that he now coaches CEOs and business leaders. He's not your typical guru, hyped up kind of coach. He just has some really solid points. They can just wake you up when you're getting a little too comfortable. Welcome to the Athlete Story Podcast. Your chance to tap into wisdom from athletes and experts in world-class sports. You are about to be taken into a chat about sports careers and related issues between an awesome guest and your listening host. The Sports Insider, repurposed Olympic mogul skier, and former freeride world tour athlete, Anya Balbia. This is priceless insight about performance, personal challenges, strategy, finances, and of course, the tricky transition into life after sports. Listen in and enjoy these insights inspirational stories that are just too athlete-centered for mainstream media. There is so much great information and insight in this interview, but don't worry about taking notes, okay? I've done it all for you. All you got to do is head on over to athletestory.com forward slash life skills, where you can download an overview of all the main takeaways from this session with Joe Jacoby. Joe started whitewater canoeing when he was 12 years old on a river in Washington, D.C., and it was on this river that he fell in love with the process of improving and see how he could be more efficient so that he could be faster and beat his friends. <laughs> While the boys were competing against each other, they were also learning how to compete against themselves. This very competitive but still friendly environment was Joe's incubator. And 10 years later, he stood at the top of the podium at the Olympics in Barcelona. I am so excited for this call. So let's not wait any longer. Let's just bring him in. Hi there. Hello. <laughs> oh, good to finally talk to you. Yeah, no, it's it's great to connect with you as well. Welcome to the show, Athlete Story. Here. Thank you. I was wondering if you could help me and my listeners by taking us inside a canoe in a river before we imagine, you know, the picnic trip down <laughs> a little. I have a description of our sport that I hope you of all people will absolutely love. So I just want you to imagine that you're in a canoe at the top of a snow-covered mountain, but it gets warm and the snow melts and turns to water and you're going downhill in the canoe and it's just moving water now instead of snow. And in our sport of whitewater canoe slalom, instead of the slalom poles being fixed into the ground, they're actually hung from wires over the river. And you have to maneuver, just like skiing, solemn skiing, you have to maneuver between the poles. The one key difference between skiing and canoeing is that if you touch the poles in canoeing, you get penalty seconds added to your time. Uh -huh. So if you touch a pole, that's two seconds added to your time. If you miss the poles altogether, that's 50 seconds added to your time. Uh -huh. So the idea is to be as fast as you can paddling between the poles while you navigate this whitewater river for time. It is just one of the most fun things that you can do in your life. It's 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 that feeling of gravity and, and working with a force of nature that is so much stronger than you and I could ever be. And so the people who are really successful in our sport, they are the ones that do a great job of taking the energy of the river and channeling that energy into their boat, into their paddle, into their body, and get that energy working for them. It, it's not your own mind. 
muscle, but it's how you manage the muscle of the river. Those are the people who tend to do really well in our sport. So you're not fighting the water, or that's not what you want to do is fight the water. You want to more like find the way for the water to help you? <laughs> Actually, that is such an insightful question and, and observation, Anya, because I think it's, it, I remember when we were competing, you know, 25, 26 years ago here at the 92 Olympic Games, my canoe partner and I were the smallest, lightest weight team in the race. Like our combined weight was under 300 pounds. Most of our competitors were much bigger and stronger than us, upwards of 350 pounds combined. And I think in a lot of ways that when you're strong, like you get this idea that it's a fight. And I think that a lot of times when you're smaller and you have to figure out other ways to work with the energy, it's more like a dance than mm -hmm. a fun. And I think that's always a nice kind of disposition to take with you. Gosh, not just out onto the river, but in life. I think there's a lot of forces out there that we can work with. Every day we have to kind of consciously choose, do we want to fight that force or do we want to try to work with it? Mm -hmm. And just have to decide and then oh, that's a, that's a nice image it, it's it's a good at least something nice to strive for it doesn't always work sometimes we do get into our fight mode but hopefully uh, choose the dance mode a little bit more than the fight mode that's a nice image how does courage come into this is there fear and courage involved in, in jumping into white water i think being honest with fear has a role right i mean i think these two are very joined at the hip, so to speak. You have to be honest with what with what scares you, with, with what's bothering you. I wrote a post about courage and confidence. I think everybody wants confidence. They want that feeling that of confidence to arrive when they're in the start gate. And you can probably remember instances in your own competitive situations. Sometimes confidence showed up and sometimes it didn't. And that leaves you with one more choice. That's when you can choose to be courageous. Confidence either came or it didn't, but courage was a choice. I think as, as long as you spend time being very honest and, and open with what isn't working well for you and maybe what are points of fear or what are challenges that you're working with, I think it becomes then much easier to choose courage in the right moment and in the right situation and, and in a way that works for you. But it's a practice. It's a practice like, like anything. So what you're saying is that if you're being honest to yourself about what it is that you're afraid of, then you can deal with it by choosing to be brave or about that part. Whereas if you are not being honest to yourself, it's always going to be uh, another reason or excuse to not do it. Absolutely. I was the ex chief executive officer of the U.S. Canoeing Federation for five years, and we were always talking with coaches and uh, athletes about, you know, the pursuit of high performance. And I think a lot of organizations and federations and Olympic committees tend to focus on the, uh, the physical, mental, and technical aspects of getting better. And what you were just alluding to right there is more what I believe are the emotional and spiritual sides of manifesting energy and manifesting performance and, and the things that you want to show up in, in the start gate. But then there's another added, it could be an added difficulty or it could be a help, but you were two in your canoe, right? Yeah, another really great observation. I think that when you decide to strap yourself into a canoe with another person, there's a lot of trust that has to happen 
you know, you want to know something about what that person's made of because his thoughts are now your thoughts. His choices are now your choices. And probably the sport it compares best to at the Winter Olympics would be the bobsled. Yeah, I, I, I think so. The, um, I mean, certainly when you think about the team element and the trust, things are happening so quickly that I think one of the really transferable life skills and business skills, I think, from sport like bobsled and luge or whitewater canoeing in a tandem situation is the unspoken communication, how you communicate with your body language. Like I know that I was in the back of our doubles canoe and my partner Scott was in the front or what we call the bow. And the way we actually paddled was I would always be looking towards his body movements to indicate to me what he was trying to do with the boat. You know, if he dropped one shoulder and put his paddle out to the side, it kind of indicated that um, he wanted to move the boat left. And then once I knew that, then I could instinctively do a stroke that could help the boat move left or help him turn the boat to the left. And so you're always kind of looking at those reading the other person and trying to understand what's happening. And it did require a lot of time and and a lot of work together, but um, it is such a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, joyful experience to paddle well on a course, on a race course and share that experience with another person. And I think we, you and I could both think about our business experience and our client experiences and, and imagine where that nonverbal communication becomes very important. I think one of the great lessons, the life lessons that the river has taught me, regardless of one person, two people, every advantage that the river gives you, there's always an equal and opposite disadvantage. And you just have to kind of work with those different forces. If we stay with the image of, of the bobsled for a bit, you have all the winter sports, whether it's on snow or ice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about the glide. And I guess water sports is the same. I wrote about this idea of glide in one of my uh, Sunday morning Joe posts. I, I just, I feel like one of the things that I learned from my time in canoeing or when I even for the little bit of time that I spend on cross country skis and, you know, you, you push on one ski and you just want to see how much energy you can get out of one push. And if you can just be patient and quiet enough, this team seems to have a little more of a, of a patient style, kind of, kind of let the energy just take care of itself, kind of waiting for the race to come to them. I like, I think people would be surprised, like how much momentum that you can take with you on your journey. Yeah, they just control the boat, put it where it needs to be, and and the rest just happens. If you get very proficient at the idea of glide, you'll find that you actually have more capacity and more energy to use at the moments when you really need it. I think when you miss out on the idea of glide as a concept of kind of letting the a, a, a unit of energy kind of ride out its course in, in anything, whether it's presenting an idea or whether it's a, a stride in um, on an ice skate or a paddle stroke in a canoe. I think when you just get give yourself the patience to let that energy carry, you begin to see that a lot of times you don't need as much force and energy and that quiet disposition gives you a chance to really feel what else is going on and where else you might be able to take on more energy. One of the things I really learned about canoeing is that when you weren't taking a stroke, like you could feel the current of the river even better. And if we believe that we're 
navigating river currents of life and business, we have to slow down enough to quiet ourselves enough to really understand what the direction of business is going, for example. I think we just get so hyped up to try to check the next box that we just forget that idea of how to glide. That kind of leads to what I know you're talking about, course correction. Can you tell us about course correction? How does that apply in, in your sport and how do you use that image in your coaching? It's putting yourself in the position to respond to what doesn't go well. What I think happens in the course of doing whatever it is that we want to do well, whether that's ski down a hill or navigate a river or run a marathon or launch a business, it never goes as planned. I think people kind of get a little impatient and they get fed up and they just sort of want to jump ship and move on to a new river, so to speak. I use the the navigation of a whitewater river as a metaphor for performing better in business and in life. And I would say one of the most popular, if not the most popular breakout session among companies and organizations last year was this idea of course correction. One of the things that I talk about when we won the Olympics back in 1992, I never say that we were the best or the fastest boat on the day of the Olympic Games. What I tell people that I feel like we did well was that we corrected mistakes and anticipated mistakes a little bit better than the competition did that day. Can you take us back to when you started this sport? I was very lucky in the way I started canoeing. I don't know if you have ever read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, yeah. The fortuitous circumstances you have in your life that are kind of beyond your control So I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area on the Potomac River, where there was world-class whitewater in a major metropolitan area, which is very rare in the sport of canoeing. At that time, the legendary coach of the sport, all the world champions, the U.S. team was paddling really well at the time. I was 12. I was, this was the 1980s. And the coach was trying to recruit some new people into the sports and their recruiting efforts yielded me. That is not saying a lot. It wasn't like I was a very athletic or fit person. I just like showing up with this group of people. And I guess I was almost too young to understand how good these athletes were. My first workout on the Potomac River, everybody there had won a world medal of some kind in a world championships, uh, a World Cup race. They were truly high, high performance paddlers. And what was crazy about that was 10 years later on the day that we won the Olympic Games, everybody who was at that first workout was either my teammate or had retired and become one of my coaches. And even my coaching and training programs today, I talk about this idea of cultures of excellence and That's what really kind of brought me along. And I was so lucky to grow up around those athletes. And we were very transparent in the way we shared information with each other. It was a super competitive environment. I think having that level of competition every day was important. And so today we hear about this idea of deliberate practice. I, I like that expression. How can And we by deliberate practice, you mean... Like practice as if it's competition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So does does that mean you would do full runs in practice always? That's a great question. Uh, it wasn't that we would do full runs. It just means that we were competitive in everything that we did. That was just such an acceptable way to kind of work with each other and against each other, but really with each other. To your question, I think it just seemed that whatever we did 
on the Potomac River. We did it competitively. In your career, you made a decision at one point to go move your whole base camp and trains in in another spot in in North Carolina exactly why did you make that move there were a couple of factors that went into that you know my canoe partner had worked at this amazing whitewater raft company in western North Carolina called the Nantahala Outdoor Center there was one other time that whitewater was in the Olympic Games it was a one-time deal in 1972 and most of the 1972 Olympic team for the United States mm-hmm. were actually employees or became employees of the Nantahala Outdoor Center. So there was a great history there. One of the things that the Nantahala offered that was so different for us was that in a place like Washington, D.C. that was expensive, you had to either go to school or have a job to live there. At the Nantahala, it was you could put the proverbial eggs all in one basket and just say, this is what we do. We don't want to get to the finish line of the Olympic trials or the Olympic Games and ask ourselves, was there something more we could have done? Mm -hmm. Maybe if we hadn't taken that extra shift at work, maybe if we hadn't taken that extra class in school. But what if we just put everything in and said, this is our life. This is what we do. And it just turned out that the remote nature of Appalachia and the people and the culture and the spirit was like the perfect place for doing that. It just also gave us a chance to, instead of just be a part of a, of a top-notch training group, it gave my canoe partner and I a chance to build our own. And that's what happened. And it was a, also a very important part of my development, not just as an athlete, but as a person. A lot of what I do in my life today is, um, a lot of it is modeled, modeled after the, the two men who founded the Nantahala Outdoor Center and their, their approach on serving the outdoors, their approach on finding flow in your life, and just the way that we try to work harder to get more people outside and outdoors. Those were the underpinnings of our existence at the Nantahill Outdoor Center for three years as we pursued the Olympic Games. It was it was a wonderful way to live and train for the 92 Olympics. And it paid off. <laughs> well, it, it did. Those French athletes are here because they're starting to practice for the world championships that are going to be hosted here in La Ceo d'Urgell in 2019. That is what we started to do one year before the Olympic Games. Uh, my canoe partner and I spent almost uh, 100 days in La Ceo d'Urgell in the year before the Olympic competition. If you want to be good at the Olympic course, like you got to spend time at the Olympic course. Yeah. And we did that. This is kind of a weird question to give to you, but I would like to have your input anyways. There seems to be a, a generation of parents who have kind of tried to avoid competition for the children. What is your take on competition? I am a huge advocate of, of competition. One of the things I always challenge people is how can we turn deliberate practice and deliberate competition and, and not back away from that. And I would actually take this opportunity. This is pretty interesting. My family and I left the United States to move to Spain uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, so here with my wife, Lisa, and our daughter, our 16-year-old daughter, Seo, who competes for the United States program, but practices with the Spanish program uh, here in La Seo d'Urgell, we embrace competition so much at, at all levels that I think one of the great opportunities for us to be here is for our daughter to be able to take advantage of traveling throughout Europe with with other friends and other athletes and 
all the experiences that go along with that are are fantastic. You know, for where the sport of canoeing is competitively in the United States, there just are not a lot of race opportunities. There's not a lot of races and there's not a lot of people to race against. Mm. And you compare that with here in Europe where the sport is really strong. There's a lot of kids who do it and there are races everywhere. I would also say that I think even for athletes like yourself and for me, that I think as we get older, our outlook on competition changes as well. It's not about getting rid of competition out of our life, but it's working with competition very differently. So today I run marathons. Uh, My goal isn't to win. Um, I I have my, my mindsets in the way that I approach marathon training today remind me nothing of the way I was as an athlete. I, I very rarely wear a watch. I don't measure very much what I do when I'm running. I, I just go out and enjoy myself. And I do find ways to challenge myself. But that's what competition does for you. It just it gives you a bit of a measuring stick every once in a while to say, um, this is who I am. Where am I? <laughs> and I think of that question, it's really healthy. And maybe it gives you a reason to go where that pain is that you would otherwise avoid. <laughs> I love that. That is, Anya, it's 100% uh, spot on. And I, I think that in life, as we get older, we need to find ways to awaken ourselves. And I think competition is the perfect way to do that. And it's not, again, it's not competition in terms of oh, I have to go win something or I have to go beat somebody. But it's just being uh, courageous enough to show up on the day and say, I'm ready I'm ready to be measured and see where I am. It can be tempting to opt out of that, that being measured part. <laughs> I think so. You know, it, I don't want to feel like I'm making judgments about other people and the way they, they look at competition. And, um, but... I think it's just a, it's a reality of the way the uh, structures and networks of our, and communities of our world work. I think competition uh, gives people a path to rise up and ultimately our communities and our structures are very dependent upon the development of new leaders. And there's no doubt competition helps to do that. I think it could be maybe the worst time ever to be moving away from competition. Why is that? Oh, I just think because of all the change and innovation that's just coming into our world right now. And I think about the habits and mindsets that it takes for us to engage with the dynamics of societies and and the change and technology and innovations and, and the challenges that come with it. I think competition is exactly what gets people to ask themselves more challenging questions. What if we did that? What if I learned this? That's the gift the competition gives us. Mm-hmm. Okay, on a very cool note, let me just take a break here to remind you that you can grab the notes about all these life skills and lessons from the river that Joe is sharing with us today at athletestory.com forward slash life skills. So, okay, let's get back to Joe's story and hear more about the practices that helped him make it to the top of his game back in the days and still today. 
I sit here in our apartment in La Ceo d'Urgell, the town that hosted the 1992 Olympic Games. And as I look over the top of the screen, I can see the French athletes literally training on the whitewater course where the Olympics were held. Gosh, we are loving this adventure living here. We're, we're so happy here. It's, it's really cool. And what about your daughter? Does she like it there? Everyone is happy here. Like, it's been great for the family, and it's been just great for us individually. So our daughter, Seo, she's 16. She competes for the United States, but she practices with the Spanish program here. The Spanish are going to host the World Championships here in 2019, and that'll be the Olympic qualification race. But uh, that's the course that we my canoe partner and I raced on in the 92 Olympics and our daughter is named after the village here that we or the town that we live in when we were expecting our our first our only child I remember we found out it was a girl we got into an elevator just afterwards it was a very short elevator ride and Lisa looked at me and she said well and I said name and she said yes and I said sayo and she goes Duh. It was the shortest conversation Lisa and I have ever had. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I met my wife, Lisa, after the 92 Olympics. She came here. She loved it. I think there was always something about this place that kind of was calling us back. And, and, and we love it. It's, it's a wonderful experience for us as individually. It's a wonderful experience for us as, as a family. And I guess it, it, it helps your daughter, too, if she's trying to qualify for those world championships. Or is she too young? Um, no, it's it's a great opportunity for her. I think that one of the things that you and I know from our respective sports is that when you have an individual sport that has an especially an element of risk, and it's just one per it's not head to head racing. It's just one person on 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 the uh, race course at a time. The way that the athletes work together, it's very healthy. It's very positive. The sense of community is very very strong. And so at 16, Sao is learning great life skills right now. And do you work with the team there at all? Anytime the coaches ask me to help out, I always volunteer. And uh, even as I train for my marathon, several of the athletes here, they go, they go running with me, which gives us an opportunity to get to know each other. And so they've become very important people in our lives here. And it certainly gets me thinking, and I think you think about this topic as well, is we can watch the Olympic Games that are happening now and we can appreciate the experience that they're having. But I'm sure you and I probably think a lot alike in what are they going to do afterwards? What could their contributions be to the to the greater world, to their greater communities? How can they transfer this very unique experience into something that will help more people. And I do that a lot here with, with the Spanish athletes. I think about that a lot. And I'm always wondering about ideas and trying to get them to speak about it and, and be open about it. And they have incredible coaching all around them that will definitely make them better athletes. And I see their talents as people. And I'm, if there's anything I can do to help them grow as people, I know they're helping me to grow as a person, so anything I can do to help them, I'm honored to do. I read that you were using training logs. Is that something you advise these young athletes to, to do? Absolutely. Um, so, I, And I love that this topic. I just want to figure out some very tangible ways that we can help athletes begin to explore 
that sense of gratitude for the opportunities that they have. I think you and I know that the lessons that they stand to learn while being an elite athlete with the people they meet and the experiences that they're going to have really gives them an edge in life. It gives them a big opportunity, assuming they're self-aware enough to begin to pay attention to that at an earlier age. And Doing a training log in paper and pencil is the perfect way to do that. I started keeping mine when I was 12 years old, and I loved every work that I did and through age 22, including the day I won the Olympics. I, think I eventually made my way back to the Olympic Village, and I opened the desk drawer and pulled out the notebook, and I wrote an entry like it was another day of just filling out the training log. My competitive experience in Athens, it was my second uh, Olympic Games experience 12 years after the first one in, in Spain. And uh, I didn't win. I was eighth place. But that experience is like the ultimate proof in my life that you learn more from your losses than you do from your wins. You know, it forces you to kind of look at what happened and how you can improve yourself. And we can be grateful for hard lessons and we can be grateful for uh, losses. You know, when you win, I mean, it's you can come up with all these reasons of why it mattered. And it's just it's too easy because you won the Olympics. But what I tell the kids today that I would do differently, the one question that I never asked myself every day was, how did I serve my sport today? So I just want you to imagine how powerful that could be to have every young person that participates in young sports write that question out and answer it in paper and pencil. How did I serve my sport today? It doesn't have to be an elaborate answer. It could be as simple as sending Anya and email, thanking her for her service, for uh, what she contributed to the sport. It could be helping maybe a spectator that came to watch practice to just tell them what's going on and what the rules were, or it could be helping out one of the younger athletes who's less experienced than you. I just want athletes to feel maybe a sense of emptiness if they leave that question blank. If they just do it one time, nothing changes. But if you do that every day for years, you really begin to see yourself as a part of something bigger than yourself. And I think then they're on that path of being more grateful for the opportunities. And then they can convert the, that gratitude into serving and um, contributing to something bigger than themselves. I think it's just exposing young people to that practice a little bit earlier and that you don't have to just be selfish and it's all about me in order to perform well in your sport, that this idea of being grateful, it doesn't make you less ambitious. Mm. It doesn't less driven. It just makes you more self-aware of what's happening. And maybe it can help you detach a bit because detachment is a big thing when you want to perform on the day. 100%. You just kind of keep doing it and your disposition begins to change. And it's it's not a tool. It's just a disposition in, of where you are. And um, as you said, of, no, of noticing that you're able to detach a little bit. Mm -hmm. And boy, what a, what a life skill that is. I mean, there's all these, I look at the things that I do to start my day today with meditation and uh, writing and, you know, doing some journaling in the morning beforehand. And uh, gosh, I can look back. I, I wish I wish that these were things that I had practiced more when I was, uh, when I was an athlete, I smile a lot when I hear some of the young athletes that are that are using like one of the meditation apps like Calm or Headspace, uh, and they're 20 years old. It's like that is so cool. <laughs> I, I love to hear that. 
Um, and that's happening more and more and more. In canoeing, do you use visualization before you go? Or can that be actually a handicap? No, it, um, you, definitely, you definitely visualize the course. I think when you do it in a doubles boat, the idea is that you have to talk a lot with each other. Mm-hmm. So that when you get to the visualization, you hope that the two guys are visualizing the same thing or else that can get messy. It's about how you change, how you course correct. If plan A doesn't work well, how you go to plan B. When there's no time to think about plan B, you just have to trust yourself that you're going to jump, move into it. But you know what plan B is and what Mm -hmm. C and D and E. And that seamless transition that I think happens in these flow gravity sports that come at you very quickly, like skiing and whitewater, I think these are hugely transferable skills in life and business. And I know they can be practiced. It's one of the reasons I always... Every organizational group I work with doesn't always work out this way, but I always offer them the option to come get out onto a river with me. Let's get in a raft. Let's set up exercises because once we get them onto the river, again, it's not about their ability to execute. It's their ability to respond to what's what's changing in front of them. And you learn a lot about their habits and their mindsets, and you can see in very real real life, what needs to be worked on in in that situation. So visualization, yes, but ultimately it's, it's with a twist. It's, you know, what are you going to do when it, when it goes off course? So you do camps or retreats, or I don't know what you call it, where you, you take people out. I'd like to do that. (laughs) Come on. So it actually, it happens in a couple of uh, different ways. So, so one thing that I do with all, all my coaching is I'm not one of these people that's looking for the latest and greatest trend in coaching and what people are talking about. All I do is I just I work with uh, I with concepts and lessons and habits and experiences that have had a dramatic impact on my life as an athlete, as an executive, um, and having written about those for a long time. I've also very good at transferring them to whatever situation is in front of an individual or an organization. So especially with the businesses, I take concepts from the river. It's all concepts of navigating rivers and using that as a a metaphor. So uh, whether I'm in Europe, where there's a lot of man-made whitewater courses and a lot of access to rafts and good raft guides and good athletes to kind of interact with, or in the United States where I tend to use the Whitewater Center in Oklahoma City, for a lot of my programs, but it's not just like recess on whitewater. Like we really go out and whatever uh, an organization is trying to work on it, whether it's um, new mission statement or it's new company values, or it's a onboarding process, taking those values that whatever the objective is, I'm really good at taking that objective and making a whitewater transfer to that objective so that people are really experiencing it and we kind of see where they are. That works really well. And then what I'm launching this year are these active lifestyle retreats here in La Salle d'Urgel. So the idea is to come here and to do some of the wonderful activities that we have, whether that's hiking or using the Parc del Segre, the food, the relationships, the the culture, the way of the people, and then figuring out ways to plug that back into their life. So I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to go back to the United States, sell their home, sell their car, get rid of all their possessions and move away. I think it's more how do you take these beautiful elements of the Catalan lifestyle and incorporate that a little bit more 
simply into your complicated life back back in the United States. But I think people really more and more crave that sense of simplicity. And it's there, but it, it, like everything, it's a practice. And I think even the fact that you're just going away from your home and going with the focus to work on something, that's something that's natural to us as athletes because we go on training camps whenever there's something we want to change or improve. But most people don't get the luxury of doing that and going on a retreat or a camp like that where you go away and you don't have to think about who's doing the laundry, who's picking up this, who's walking the dog. You're there with a purpose and that just adds to the whole <laughs> experience, right? That's it's just a great point, Anya. When you think about how much you and I practiced, how many hours and weeks and months and years that we practice, just look how in business, how infrequently we ever practice. It's just like all we do is race. We're just racing around, performing, 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 check the box, check the box, check the box. And so rarely do we actually ever put ourselves in that training camp environment. When you fail to do that as uh, as a leader, as an organization, when you just kind of keep grinding and keep grinding, the only thing you're grinding is yourself. Your only thing you're grinding is your own motivation, your own intentions, your own health. And it takes removing yourself from those conditions. And it's just one of the most important lessons that you and I learned as athletes. Well, talking about grind, <laughs> we talked about how we were lucky that our sports, mine, mine being freestyle skiing and free ride skiing and yours in the canoe, how that's a fun sport, like it's physically thrilling and that makes you want to go there, even the, those days where you get hurt or, you know. What about you running a marathon? Is that fun? It's not that I like one more than the other, but I value having both kinds of exercise and competition in my life. I think there are some activities that just keep you very mindful and present. And then there are some, like even marathon running, where you can be mindful and present of each step and it's its own challenge, but sometimes you drift a little bit. As I tell people, I can maybe think about what I'd like to cook for dinner without feeling like I'm going to get hurt because if I was paddling a river or you were doing aerial tricks and you thought about chicken or, or fish, you have no teeth at the end of that thought. In whitewater canoeing, you have to learn a lot of different techniques, and then you have to strategically decide when and where to use which techniques. So a little like skiing, yes, you can practice going fast in a straight line, but there's never going to be more than a, a millisecond before you're setting up some kind of turn. And I think that constant change is the antithesis of running a marathon. Step by step by step by step. What has been the hardest moment for you in your sport career? The one that always jumps out. It was about a year and a half before the 1992 Olympics. I was out running a river for fun. You know, that's one of the nice things about canoeing. It's not just training, but you go out and you run rivers for fun. Sometimes you paddle bigger whitewater rapids than you would normally race on. And I remember it was a year and a half before the 92 Olympics and uh, I dislocated my shoulder while running a river one afternoon. And it was an awful dislocation too. It was it was in a very remote part of Tennessee. Were you alone? I wasn't, but I was with one other person, but he had to leave me to go get help. Oh. With the shoulder not being reset. So the shoulder was out. And the, it, the shoulder ended up being out for five and a half hours oh. before before it was reset. It was, and you know, I was very tense, which didn't help the efforts to try to reset it 
in when I was on the riverbank. And so eventually I got to a hospital in the middle of nowhere and, and got a, a lot of drugs into my system where they could force the, the, the muscles there to relax to where they could reset it. I just think about that experience is not just something that I did to myself, but I was in a devil's canoe, not when the accident happened, but my responsibilities were in part to another person. And it just, it, that felt awful. That just felt terrible the, to the degree I let Scott down. And that was a significant chunk of time out of the boat. And it was at that age, I think I was 20, about 20 years old when that happened. It was hard to get the perspective that sometimes injuries also can be a silver lining as well. They can learn lessons that you can, you can do different things when you're injured. First of all, you can strengthen that part of your body. You can make it stronger than it was before. That's a great thing. But then you can also, you can do other things in your sport because you have time. You still go out on the river and the river still gives you insight. It's actually a big part of the reason that I go out onto the water. It forces me to relearn. The river itself has changed very little since 1992. Uh, I've changed a lot. The equipment has changed a lot. The culture around the sport has changed a lot. Is there anything you would say that your sport has given you as a gift that has come unexpected? Oh, unexpected. <laughs> Gosh, it feels like everything. I really feel that the lessons and the concepts of the river have been my greatest teacher in life. When I just look at what the river does, how energy moves, how water moves through a set of obstacles and through a channel and on a river and where the energy goes and, and how you work with it. it. Gosh, if you just look at that and you transferring that to another situation, it's like, it's energy, it's science, it's never wrong. It's just what it does. I don't want to make the assumption that just because I get older, I get wiser. But I don't know, there's something that I'm more in tune with today about the water and the way it moves that I seem to be able to pull out applications to a whole lot of other situations, whether that's choices, whether that's health, whether that's relationships, whether that's business performance. The river seems to know what it's doing, like where energy goes, where it moves. And I think it maybe it helps me to be more aware of how to position myself relative to those movements, provided I give myself the space to just step back and look at what's really happening here so that I'm fighting less and maybe dancing a little bit more. Thanks again. Remember that you can get a simplified overview of all the main takeaways from this session over at athletestory.com forward slash life skills. If you have any fellow athletes or people who you think could benefit from listening to this, of course, I'd be very grateful if you'd share this podcast with them. Thank you. I gotta say, I'm already looking forward to presenting you to yet another fabulous guest in the next episode of Athlete Story. In the meantime, you take care, okay? Bye. Thank you for listening to Athlete Story. You are awesome. If you are yourself a world-class athlete or former, don't hesitate to come over on athletestory.com and check out more free stuff and resources to help you thrive in and benefit from your sports career. Dare to prepare. Then get yourself out there. Stay in touch.